Good morning, I'm Rachel Porter. Today we will be reading from Malachi chapter 3, verse 1 through 5, which can be found on page 802 in the Pew Bible. Malachi 3, 1 through 5. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire, and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi, and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings and righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord, as in the days of old, as in in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired workers and his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner, and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. This is the word of the Lord. Morning, guys. My name is Stephen Ellison. I am the uh, minister to children and youth here. This, and so it's a, uh, it's a blessing for me to be able to bring this message this morning. So we just read around of Malachi chapter 3. Uh, if you are flipping through trying to figure out where that is in your Bible, it's the last book of the Old Testament. Um, and as we kind of walk through this series during Advent, where we're talking about these Old Testament passages, these stories, these prophecies that are all pointing towards what God has planned for His people, especially through His coming servant, through His anointed one, through His Messiah, uh, we get to settle into these places and deal with passages that Oftentimes, we probably wouldn't come across very frequently, uh, but man, they give us such a message of hope and also a message of deep truth. So as we've walked through this series and we've talked about different stories and, and, and prophecies from the Old Testament, um, we've kind of come across different themes along the way, and, and it's going to be the same thing today. We're going to talk about different things that the Messiah brings when he comes, and the thing that we're going to be kind of focused on today is he brings justice. We've talked a lot about peace this morning as we've kind of gone through our Advent kind of preparations. Uh, and, and peace is something extremely appropriate to talk about during Christmas time. Uh, it's an incredible message of God's uh, gift to us of grace that He sent His Messiah to die on the cross for our sins. But with that message also comes a recognition that peace between us and God is not naturally there, which is a hard thing to realize. And that's what our passage is going to be talking about a lot today. So, if we're looking at the line of things that happen in the Old Testament, especially as we kind of walk through uh, the story, if we start back with where Pastor Chris kind of preached with us a couple of weeks ago, starting with this uh, King David, the promise that God made to him that he would have a son who would sit on the throne of Israel forever to rule in righteousness and justice. We start a timeline from there, and we look what happens in the nation of Israel going forward uh, it's a pretty steady decline. It's, it's a pretty sad story from the kings that follow after David and his family line. One after another seem to take the people further and further away from God, away from his law, away from following him. 
There's some good kings thrown in there, but it's not generally the story. The story is the people constantly turning and rebelling against their God. God, in his graciousness, sent his prophets to tell them that, that there's a consequence for their sin, right? If they continue to turn and continue to rebel and continue to walk away from him, the consequence is that these promises that he's given of, of his blessing will be taken back. The promised land that they've been brought into after they were brought out of the land of Egypt They'll be removed from. The temple where they can have access to the presence of God will be something that they will no longer have access to. But the people don't listen. They have no desire to hear from the prophets. They don't believe that they hold the word of God, so they ignore it. And sure enough, in time, that's what God brings. He sends the Chaldeans of Babylon to come in to uh, capture the people to conquer the land and take them into exile away from their promised land, away from the temple, away from the, what the symbol of God's presence was. And it seems like around this time is when the people start to kind of think about uh, what the prophets have been saying, right? They start to take it a little bit more seriously. They see that the things that they talked about actually came about and start to believe that maybe these people really did have the word of God. And so when they look at it, they start to realize that these prophets not only gave messages of judgment, but also messages of hope. A hope that God would not be angry with his people forever. A hope that one day, after a generation, after 70 years, he would bring his people out of exile back to their promised land. He would bring them back to the temple, back to his presence, and then one day, he would bring them back to the place where they would be able to see that King of David, that Son of God ruling in righteousness and justice forever. So when the time of exile ends for them and they're ready to leave the land of exile and they start to come back, they're like excited. They're thrilled to be able to see what God has promised come about, right? So they've seen these promises of judgment be fulfilled. Now they're ready to see the promises of hope get fulfilled. And as they make their way back and they start to settle back into their promised land, they're really quickly hit with a realization that they are just as broken and just as sinful as they've ever been. And disappointment starts to set on the people. Because they look around and they saw that God had promised that he was going to judge their enemies just like he had judged them. And when they look around, they, they, they see the enemies of their nation thriving just like they were before. And, and they've heard that they would have a king that would help rule over them in justice. But they look around and, man, injustice is everywhere in the land. People don't treat each other fairly. People oppress one another. They cheat one another. They lie to one another. It's rampant. And because of this, they start to grow cold towards God. They start to distrust him. Their worship turns back to half-heartedness. They, they follow him in name, but not in spirit. They start to ignore him all over again. And that's where the prophet Malachi steps in. That's kind of the order here. So not only is Malachi one of the last books in the Old Testament, it's also one of the last to be kind of written chronologically, which is not always the case as you kind of flip through your Bible. So what Malachi steps into is many years after the exile, he comes to a people who are disappointed because they don't feel like the promises of God have come about the way that they hoped. And their disappointment has led to distrust. They look around and they see even their priests who are supposed to be the representatives of God and, and these people are acting just as worldly as anybody else and they just openly oppose the thought that following God would be any help to them. So Malachi comes in with a message of God and what God's going to do is he's going to challenge their thoughts. So throughout the book, if you kind of look at it and open it, if you just kind of flip around in that book, it's not very long, you'll see like the first thing that happens is God brings a statement, 
And the people kind of start to question if that's true. And God gives his evidence. He gives his reason. So the very first thing in the book of Malachi is God says, you are my people and I love you. But the people in their skeptical hearts say, how have you loved us? Like, look around. Do you see that like, there's still people oppressing us, that our enemies are still like, coming against us, that there's people in our land still doing injustice? How do you love us? How do we see that? And God says, because I chose you out of all the nations of the earth. That's an honor that not even everybody in your own family line has received. You're the one that's received my promises, and you'll still get them. But he also brings like, what we'd call like, disputations against them. He also brings up things that that they're doing that are far from him. And he says things like, but why do you steal from me? And the people are still skeptical, right? And they say, how have we stolen from you? And he says, because you refuse to give your tithes, which is clear in the law that I gave you, you're supposed to do. And, and he says, why do you give me such bad offerings that are so worthless? And they say, how do we give you bad offerings? And he says, because you promised to give me the best of your flocks when you come to bring offerings, but instead what you've given me is your animals that are sick or lame or blind or defective in some kind of way. He said, imagine you were throwing a feast for one of your governors. If you brought that as your, 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 your meal, do you think they'd feel honored? How much less do you think I feel honored by that? It's actually a really heavy book with a lot of, um, a lot of heavy themes. And that's where we kind of step into when we get to chapter 3. We're actually going to start in chapter 2. We're going to start with verse 17 because that's the next, like, disputation. That's the next issue that God brings up among the people. And that's going to set us up for the rest of this passage to see what's happening here. So, in Malachi chapter 2, starting in verse 17, it says this, But you have wearied the Lord with your words. But you say, how have we wearied him? And he says, by saying that everyone who does good and uh, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? So the people have seen the injustice and the oppression and, and the cheating and the lying all around them, and they've started to question, where is this God that we've heard about? This God of justice and this God of fairness, this God who doesn't look kindly on evil and who judges sin. Where is that God? Because we don't see him right now. And they even venture as far to give an answer to that, right? And they say, well, the answer is that God must not actually oppose evil. That God must, must actually not hate sin. In fact, he might even delight in it. In fact, he even approves of those who do such things. It's an attack on God's fairness, on his justice. And even more than that, it's, it's an attack on God's holiness. So when, when the prophet says, you've brought heavy words against God, and they say, how? And they say, you've accused the almighty, holy God of being unholy, uh, of approving of sin, of being just as broken as anything else in this world. And it's a heavy, heavy burden that he lays right there. And what we're going to see in the rest of our text is that God's going to lay out his plan to prove his holiness, to prove his might, and to prove is justice. Because what we serve is a fair and awesome God. His plan as we kind of work through the passage goes a little bit like this. If the people's question is, is God just? God's answer is undoubtedly yes. And the proof of that is you'll see it when my messenger comes among you. And if you ask the question, well, how does your messenger come and show us your justice? The answer is, 
because he rightly and justly judges all sin. So let's kind of walk through the text as, as we look at that. Here's God's answer, right? If the question is, is God just, here's his response right here in, in chapter 3, verse 1. He says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he'll prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come into his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So God's answer is, is kind of this like, uh, it's a little bit complicated, it's a little bit difficult, but it's, it's this image of someone or multiple people who are coming to fulfill God's promises. So there's a few different people mentioned there, and there's a few different things happening. So let's kind of walk through it pretty slowly, right? So the first person we see mentioned here is the messenger. He's one that's going to prepare the way before the Lord. Uh, Malachi talks about this a little bit more in the end of the book. If you've got your Bibles open, it's in uh, chapter 4, starting in verse 5. He says, Behold, I'll send to you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he'll turn hearts of the fathers to their children and the, chil- the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So, so there's this idea in, in like, that would have been pretty common among, among like the people of this day, right? where if a king was going to travel to a foreign land for something, he would send a messenger or somebody before him, somebody that would go and kind of scout out the path to make sure all the arrangements were, were made and, and even like make some repairs to the road if it were necessary to make it easy and smooth on the king's travel. What God says is, I'm going to send you someone but before he comes, I'm going to send my messenger. What he's going to do is straighten out this path. He's going, to, he's going to prepare the way, but not in a physical way. He's going to prepare the hearts of the people who were to hear. He goes on to say, I, I'll turn the hearts of fathers back to their children, children back to their fathers, away from the things of the sinfulness that they've chosen and prepare, to prepare them for the message of holiness that I'm prepared to give them. And like, if you were... Again, if you're in the original audience, if you're somebody in Malachi's day hearing this, right, that could be like, well, that sounds great, and that's kind of confusing, but I don't know what that is. And what we're going to see through here, and what we've talked about a lot, is the beautiful thing about these passages, our, Pastor Chris has kind of given us this, uh, this illustration of these images of who the Messiah would be in the Old Testament. Uh, sometimes they can feel kind of vague. Sometimes they can feel kind of hard to grasp. But like a river, right, these things start out as, as small streams, and over time, different streams different creeks, different rivers start to pour into these things. And further down the line, what you actually have is something pretty robust. You have something pretty great. And in the same way, if, if we look at a lot of these individual messages of, of who the Messiah would be, they, they often feel hard to grasp. But as they all come together, we have a much fuller picture of who the Messiah would be. Even to the point where here at the end of the Old Testament, it's still a little bit fuzzy, and the people are still wondering exactly what this would look like. But when Jesus comes on the scene, it's such a full picture of who he would be that we know that nobody else could fulfill all of this but Christ. So what we know when we read this is, while this seems a little bit fuzzy, we actually have the answer, right? We actually have the full picture, because unlike the people of Malachi's day, we, we know the end of the story. We have the rest of the New Testament. So if we're sitting there wondering, like, this sounds great, that there's a messenger who is to come, but who would that be? Uh, luckily, it's already answered for us. Like, Jesus quotes this directly out of Matthew 11 and says that this is John the Baptist. John the Baptist came with a ministry and a message of preaching repentance. 
because the kingdom of God was at hand. He came to tell the people, turn away from trusting in your sin and trusting in worldly things that are not going to fulfill you, that are going to lead you towards a path of death and prepare for what God is bringing because he's bringing something great. He was baptizing people as a sign of washing away their sins so that they could be prepared to receive the one who would actually finally deal with their sins, the one who would bring them that salvation. He prepared the hearts of the people for this. But then as the passage goes on in Malachi 3, somebody new is introduced and it says, And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come into his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So, so the, the, it seems like there's two people mentioned there. There's the Lord and then there's this messenger. But the way that it's talked about it, it feels like they're the same person. Especially since we're saying that we know the rest of the story. We have this understanding of the New Testament. And if we ask ourselves, who is somebody that is sent by God but has still got the name the Lord? Who is somebody who comes among us but still has the right? It says that he's coming into his temple. Who's got the right to call it his temple? Who's one that's obedient to God and comes and brings this message of good news but actually is this bringer of the new covenant? Man, there's really only one answer. There's only one person that could carry all of that, and it's Christ. There's only one person that could carry either of those, and it's Christ. What we have is this picture of a messenger coming beforehand to prepare the way for for Jesus, to prepare the way for the Messiah so that when he comes, this message of reconciliation, this message of peace, this message of redemption, man, the people's hearts are ready and eager and longing. And that's what you wait for on Christmas, right? That's the point of Christmas. Even just this idea of like Christmas as a kid, right? When you're waiting for Christmas Day to get here or you're waiting for even Christmas break so that you'll be out of school and you're waiting for for the time where you can finally open all these presents and you can't fall asleep on Christmas Eve because you're just waiting. Man, that anticipation sits in our heart because that's also what these people were anticipating. They were anticipating something greater. They were waiting for this coming promise of their peace. And, and, and Malachi says, I know you're waiting and you're, and you're looking for justice, but I'm, I'm promising you that it's going to come. And what a beautiful picture. What a message of peace and what a mes- message of beauty and, and, and of longing. That's so incredible, right? Verse 2. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he's like a, fi- a, a refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap. He'll sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they'll bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. So we go from this message of, of hope and of peace that he says, the Lord who you seek is coming. The, the one who you long for will arrive. But who can endure the day that he does come? Who can withstand it? You see, the, the people were asking for justice, right? They, they, they were asking, they were saying, God, we see all this sin and this evil in the world around us. When are you going to come and judge sin like you said you would? And God says, I promise I will. But in this is like this really common theme for us as people in how we look at justice and mercy 
with this idea that when we look at the sin and the evil and the brokenness in the world around us, when we look at, at, at the unfaithfulness of others, especially when it affects ourselves, man, there's a desire for wrongs to be righted. And like, hey, that's, that's a God-given desire. A desire to see justice done when wrong things happen is a good thing. We should have that in us. But like almost as common to our experience is the fact that we, we really, really downplay the need for justice when we're the ones that are in the wrong. We really, really downplay the need for wrongs to be righted when it was us who did the wrong thing. So the, here the people are saying, God, where is your justice? When are you going to judge sin and when are you going to judge evil? And God says, listen, that day when I do is coming. And you're going to receive what you're asking for, what you're longing for. But the reality is, I don't know that you know what you ask for. Because our God is holy, and he will judge. But our God is so holy and so perfect that he does not judge with partiality. He judges all sin, all brokenness, all unrighteousness. He says, and when I start that, I'll start with you. I'll start with my people. Because you remember, like, it's, we, we talked about the priests during the time. And the priests weren't following God as they should. They were half-heartedly doing it and doing things that were worldly. Uh, th- their offerings are not acceptable to God right now. These half-hearted offerings aren't what he wants. So what he's going to do is refine them. Man, through this, this painful process of fire, it talks about refining them as gold and silver. The, the, the image here is like of taking a furnace that's so hot that it melts down this gold and the silver that you're like pulling straight out of the ground. Like it's rocks, right? It's, it's mixed with dirt. It's mixed with all these kind of impurities. It's melting that down to its very core through a fire that's so hard, hot that it actually separates what's of little value, what's worthless, what's impure, what's dirt, so that it floats to the top. So what can be separated is scraped away and all you're left with is what's valuable when it talks about the fuller soap this is either this idea of like kind of further like chemically refining this stuff or like bleaching clothes removing the dirt removing the stains of it either way it's like a harsh metaphor right it's a metaphor of something really intense something really hard something really difficult that separates out what's invaluable and impure from what's valuable and necessary And it's not a process that's viewed as easy. It's not a process that's viewed as pleasant. In this way, the judgment of God on those who are his is hard. And he asks, who can stand in that day? It's certainly hard and painful, but I I do want us to look at this. It's a judgment of the sin of those who belong to him, but it's not an ultimate judgment. That fire is a refining thing. It's not meant to destroy for those who are his. It's not meant to eliminate for those who are his. It's meant to boil down to your core so that we can separate out what is the old man inside of us and leave behind what the Spirit is doing so that we're further prepared for the day when Christ returns. It's, it's, a, it's a really beautiful and a really difficult thing. It's, it's incredibly necessary and incredibly hard and incredibly difficult and it really is an incredible sign of God's mercy to us that he does this. That not only does he deal with our sins for those of us who know Christ on the cross, but he continues that process of refining us. So the idea is when you, when you would like melt down that silver, the idea is that you would know you're done with the refining process when the guy that's melting it down can look in the silver and see the reflection of his face back in it. 
And that is what God does with us. He melts us down and he purifies us over and over and over again until we sit there and shine forth a reflection of our Father and his grace and his holiness. Something we'll never totally attain in this life, but something God's working for us all the way towards his day of glory. And it is hard and it's painful, but John Piper talks about how the furnace of affliction in the family of God is always for refinement and never for destruction. And now if you like hearing me say this and hearing about like judgment on uh, the people of God first and, and how he's still going to deal with our sins. If that sounds funky to you, like I understand that. And if you're saying, where is that in the, in the New Testament? It's actually in quite a few different places, right? So in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verses 13 through 15, Paul gives an illustration that looks a lot like this where he talks about how our works are kind of like these, these things built on foundations of either gold or silver, but they'll be tested down in that day when he comes. And, and, and they'll be melted down to see what stands. Those that are worthless burn up, but those that remain are of gold and of silver. I think even more clearly, man, I think this passage is important. If you turn to 1 Peter in chapter 4, as I read through this, and as we talk about a refining fire where God melts us down to our core so that he can purify us for the day that's to come and judgment that starts with his people, listen to this passage. He says, Beloved, Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, as a thief, or as an evildoer, as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? There is so much in that passage. I want you to look at a couple of things, though. First, there's that image of, of that fiery trial that comes on us to test us to see what's pure and to see what's not. And then we kind of have this image of, of what the purpose of this, right? Because if, if you are suffering and sharing in Christ's sufferings, it says you, uh, you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. It's preparing you for that day. So when we're looking at this prophecy in Malachi, what's really kind of strange is that it's this prophecy about what was to come that all seems grouped together in just a few short verses. But it starts all the way with John the Baptist, and what we're going to see is it ends with like God's restoration and judgment of all things. It's this broad span of time that it covers. And what, what this seems to be talking about is Peter's talking about when is this time where God's going to judge his own household? When is that? Now's that time. Now is the time where God puts us through these fiery challenges and trials as Christians so that we can experience more of him, more of our need of him. It can separate our dependence on worldliness and sinfulness so that we can depend on him more fully. I mean, if you ever wonder, if you look in the Old Testament, the Old Testament, God promises a lot of things of, if you follow me, good will come. And the people still refuse to follow him. But there seems to be some kind of shift in the New Testament. When the New Testament starts to talk about these things, it says, hey, if you're a follower of me, expect great hardship. If you follow me, expect it to be difficult. Expect painful things to come. We've been working through the book of Acts with our youth group, especially the the last half of the book of Acts. And 
we wanted to talk about it because it was a book about, you know, like we could see a lot about sharing your faith in that, and, and, and you could see a lot about how the church was supposed to function in that. But what we quickly realized is you can't walk through the book of Acts without talking about persecution almost every single week because it's the basis and it's the foundation. It's the background of everything that's going on there. This is the Christian experience, and it's not because it's apart from God's plan, but it is God's plan to refine you. It is God's mercy to deal with the sin that's inside of us and to prepare us to be able to enjoy the day of his glory forever. There's an author that I really enjoy reading. He's a guy that lived in the 1800s. His name is J.C. Ryle. And he says something like this. He says, Most hope to go to heaven when they die, but few, it may be feared, take trouble to consider if they would enjoy heaven if they ever got there. His point is that heaven is a place of holiness. It's a place where sin is removed, and what we do is sit there and enjoy the presence of our God forever and ever by glorifying Him. But he says, many people desire to go to heaven, but in this life have zero joy in what's holy, but instead chase after what's sinful, have no desire to sit in the presence of God, and glorifying, is not, glorifying His name is not something that's fun. And that's what heaven is. And guess what? All of us, all of us are built to enjoy sin more than we, uh, we, we, we desire to glorify God. What's necessary is a, is a process of refinement. Even after we come to know him, it is God's grace that he sent Christ to die on the cross to cover our sins, to be our substitute so that our sin is dealt with justly on the cross. And it is God's grace that he continues to refine us so that that mark of sin is removed and we can be prepared for the day of glory. That's also not where this passage ends. If you look at verse 5 in chapter 3, it says this, Then I'll draw near to you for judgment, and I'll be a swift witness against the sorcerers and against the adulterers and against those who swear falsely and against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, and against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. First, there is this type of judgment that comes on the people of God that's not meant to destroy, but it's meant to refine. It's meant to, to weed out the impure and leave behind that fruit of the Spirit that, that, that He's working in your heart. But then there is an ultimate type of judgment where He does deal finally with sin. Because here's the deal. Remember, the question that we're dealing with in the text is, is God just? And God says, yeah, I'm just because there's no sin that won't be left undealt with. Either sin will be placed on my son, on my messenger, who comes as God in the flesh, holiness. That's the thing. Christmas is beautiful because we get this idea of, of God Almighty taking on the form of a child to come and, and take on our sin, take on our judgment when we didn't deserve it. But what's also so incredible that we don't think about is the holiness of God dwelling among us. This perfect righteousness and perfection is with us in the form of a human being. It's God with us. And as he comes, and as he comes to be with us in this space, and as he comes to be with us in this time, we can both recognize his gentleness and his graciousness and his kindness and his love towards us and his divine hatred of sin and his love and how he deals with it by placing that sin on the shoulders of his son, who though he did not deserve to be punished for sin, died in our place as our substitute, if by faith we believe and follow him. 
Sin will be dealt with in one of two ways. One is our sin is taken off of our shoulders and placed on that of Christ. And then in God's grace and his love towards us, he continues to refine us throughout our lives. Or it's still left on our shoulders. The same fire that refines those are his. It it talks about being a fire of destruction for those who aren't. Look at chapter 4 in Malachi, starting with verse 1. It says, Behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all the evildoers will be stubble. And that day, uh, that day is coming, and it shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. Same fire that refines those who are his consumes those who aren't. And that's a hard message. And it is one that is utterly consistent throughout all of God's word. The difference between group A and group B, the ones who were refined and those who are consumed, isn't like one of deserving it, right? No one deserves refinement. No one makes themselves silver or gold. Nobody is in that boat by themselves. It's simply by trusting in Christ that we get there. The difference between those who are refined by the fire and those who are consumed by it is given to us at the end of this verse, right? It names all of these sins, all of these things. These are all things that are explicitly written in the, co- in the, in the, in the covenant that God gave his people, in the law, uh, as things that God uh, wanted his people to have nothing to do with. It's utterly sinful. But all of these things are summed up with one thing, one attitude here at the end. One attitude at the end sums up all of these things. Those who do not fear him. The fear of the Lord is this understanding of God's incredible holiness. It's an understanding of, if if you look at Isaiah 6, it's, it's the prophet seeing the holiness and the glory of God being awestruck by this perfect, holy, almighty God and realizing in his presence how far off we are from that. How deeply separated we are from that. How we have nothing to compare to that. And realizing we deserve judgment just as much as the next person. But it is the grace of God that takes away that sin. It is his mercy through his son whom he would send to us to create a path towards a holiness that's not ours, but it's given to us freely through Christ. If you look at this passage, it's, it's harsh. And if you ask, like, man, this is again, this is again hard. Where do we see this in the New Testament? Even Jesus himself says in Luke chapter 12 and verse 49, he says, I come to cast fire on the earth. Would that it were already kindled. This message of a destroying fire is a real one. And one that can't be ignored. You know, as we've kind of walked through this series and we've talked about this illustration of this river that grows, it's like this picture of these different um, prophecies and stories about who the Messiah would be. And I think it's a great illustration. And I think you could also take it a different way too. You could also look at it as an illustration for God's mercy, for those who believe and those who don't. 
throughout this life, man, we are surrounded by the mercies of God, whether we realize it or not. The fact that we draw breath every day and that judgment of sin isn't put on us immediately is God's common grace towards us all. And whether we realize it or not, we sit here and float down this river of his mercy and experience it and just kind of passively go with it. So as I was thinking about this, right, I was thinking about not necessarily like the Mississippi River like we've talked about, uh, but, but the Colorado River, which is a little bit different. So about a year and a half ago, my wife Macy and I were celebrating our one-year anniversary. We took a trip out to Estes Park. It was the first time we've ever been out there. Went to Rocky Mountain National Park and hiked up. And, and you can hike up along the Colorado River up there, and it's pretty close to where the river begins. So as we're out there, um, I'm like telling my wife, I'm going to wait across the thing. And she's like, please don't. I'll never see you again. Please never go out there. Um, but it's like you can do it, right? Like it's like you would probably do it just above your knees and walk through the thing. And it's like this beautiful like mountain scene with this like quiet little creek slash river that's just kind of moving in front of you. And it's just so beautiful. But there's a couple of things about the Colorado River that make it a little bit different. One is that when it leaves there, it actually flows through mostly desert. So if we're using this as, a, as an illustration of God's mercy, what happens is this river flows through a place, this, this river of water and life flows through something that's starkly contrasted to it, through an area of dryness and death. As you float around, along this river, the life and the water and the life-giving presence that you have in that is starkly in contrast to everything else that surrounds it. And this river grows strong, right? Like if you picture this, like man, you, you, you can see people rafting down the, uh, like through the, through the Grand Canyon where, where the river runs through it. And you can see like the Hoover Dam, which is this massive thing built just to hold back this river. It's incredible. And there's also something else strange about the Colorado River. Unlike most rivers, there's a point where it stops growing. There's a point where it actually starts to shrink. Unlike most rivers, it no longer ever reaches the ocean. And the reason why is it's running mostly through the desert, right? So it's running through an area where water is pretty valuable and people need it. So if you wonder how like cities like Phoenix or Las Vegas or uh, Los Angeles can like survive in the desert, it's because they use that kind of water, right? Anywhere between like 40 and 90% of those cities' drinking water come from that river. And if you ever wonder like how you can eat your vegetables and stuff like that in the winter, well, it's probably because it got grown in places that don't really have seasons like the desert. But what they need to do that is a lot of water, right? So where do they take it from? They divert it from this river. And surely but slowly, as it travels down and more and more water is taken, as we passively float on this river of grace without even noticing it at some point, it's no longer available. You find yourself stuck in a place of nothing but dryness and nothing but death. My point here is not that like there's only like a little bit of God's mercy to go around or anything like that. My, my point is that it's not always available. While we live in this life, it is. While we float down this river where we still have breath, God's mercy is still available to us. He shows us who Christ is. Even the, even the fact that, that even in a nominal culture, we celebrate the day of his coming as almost this annual reminder of who he is. God's mercy is here for you today. For you to accept, for you to know, for you to be counted as one of his children, to be loved by him, to be brought into his grace. All it takes is belief in him. This belief is not like fire insurance or something that's easy. We talked about the costs. 
Jesus tells you to count the cost. The, 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 the passage tells you to count the cost. But the Bible also tells you something else, that it's worth it. It's always worth it. We worship a just God. A just God deals with all sin. He deals with our sin by first and foremost paying for it by the blood of Jesus who died in our place on the cross, who rose three days later, and who promises eternal life to whoever believes and follows him, turning from their sin and trusting in him forever. Or that judgment still lays on us, and the fire that refines his believers will one day consume those who aren't, and that is a place that the Bible calls hell, a place of separation from God, away from all his goodness and eternal torment. Because these are not easy things to say. Or like fun things. But they are God's word. And they are truth. We say this not as like stamping down our foot in the place where we can feel more self-righteous than anybody else. We say this as somebody that as believers who know that we deserve that. But in Christmas, we remember that God has provided justice apart from our own payment. So if you, if you came here today and, um, you know, you showed up seven days before Christmas, wanted to watch your grandkids sing in the choir, um, and you opened up to Malachi, you were like, man, this message of judgment, this was the Christmas message I showed up for, right? Um, and it is hard. But there's not like a need to downplay that or to ignore that or to hide from that. It is God's word to understand where we actually stand in relation to an all-holy God makes the message of his peace so much more beautiful. Because here's the thing, if you're somebody in Malachi's day again, and you receive this message that says, hey, you deserve, almost when it says, hey, this is the one whom you're looking for, and this is the one whom you're desiring to see, it's almost a little bit sarcastic because they don't even know what they're asking for. And if you're somebody in Malachi's day, you're almost left with the idea of, oh, if I deserve judgment as much as the next guy, where does that leave me? But again, we're left with the fuller picture. We're left with a trace that leads us only a few pages over to the story of Jesus, to our redemption, to our hope. So if you're looking for application to this, um, one, if you're a believer, let me say, like, your practical holiness is important. Like, God will stop it, like, no, like, he won't stop to continue to root that stuff out of you because he loves you so much and he knows it's destructive power so that when we look at the sin in our own life and we understand what God does in us in his grace to root that stuff out, it's it's a little ridiculous that we don't take it as seriously. Our personal holiness is important, and there is a lifelong process where God is the refining fire that melts us down. It's nothing that we can do, right? But there is like a personal responsibility in our chase after holiness. Not that we'll ever receive it in this life. Perfection's not going to get here, but, but a desire, a desire to sit in the fire even though it's painful so that we can become more like Christ is essential. If you're somebody that doesn't know Christ, and the warning is real here. The judgment either gets dealt with on Christ's shoulders or on yours. 
The result is either an eternity celebrating with him in heaven or an eternity separated from him in hell. And we talk about the fear of the Lord. Listen, the, the idea isn't that you scare anybody so that they want to run and get fire insurance, but the idea, I don't think there's anywhere in Scripture that would say, hey, if you don't know him, you shouldn't be afraid. I think that's present all over Scripture. But that fear, if we meet it with an understanding of God's covenant love and grace, and when we meet it with an understanding of who Jesus is, it leads us to a place where we recognize there is only one path towards our restoration. It's not of ourselves, it's of Him. The fear of the Lord leads always to trust in Christ. There is no true fear in Him without it. If you don't know Him, trust in Him. And for all of us, as we approach Christmas and we get to the season of, of joy and peace, which is so appropriate, let's not let it be always easygoing feelings and, and peaceful cups of hot cocoa. Let us, let's, let's remember that we were once at this point of crisis too, realizing, hey, I deserve this judgment as much as the next person. We're hating evil and at the same time knowing that the evil is alive in us. But in that place of crisis, God sent his son. He sent our peace. He sent the justice that comes not on our own shoulders but apart from us so that sin is dealt with but not at our own expense. He sends us the love of his son. Let that approaching of Christmas morning lead you to cry when it arrives just like John the Baptist cried, just like this messenger cried, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And as we get kind of close, I pray that if I pray that all of us leave here with a sense that we truly know that this salvation has either been attained for us or is attainable for us simply by trusting and following in Christ. This is the story of how a holy and loving God came. And on Christmas, we recognize both his gentleness and his awesome holiness. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for, um, thank you for your word. God, thank you for your justice. Not only that, but thank you for the justice that I don't have to pay, God. Father, I know that, I know very, very really how much I deserve your judgment, not just as refinement, but ultimately. My God, you've given me your messenger, your son, your Christ. You've given me all that I need. Let that be true for all of us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So as we celebrate this time and we celebrate the forgiveness offered to us in a Savior who comes as a fulfillment of all of God's promises, we also take communion because of that. We feast on this bread as the broken body of Christ and on this juice as his blood spilled out for us. We take communion as believers. So if you're a believer, I would encourage you to come forward. If you're not a believer, uh, we would encourage you to stay where you are. There's prayers in your bulletins to look over um, and realize that this is an important thing as, as a believer to recognize and proclaim Christ as our Savior. Uh, if Christ is not your Savior, there's no reason to proclaim. But we would ask you to not. Um, as you come forward, there's a gluten-free station available um, and there's prepackaged things over there if, if that's more comfortable to you because of COVID and things like that.
what I want to encourage you do, to do in this time is as you come forward, quietly reflect, not just on the holiness of God, though you should, but on the holiness of God as it meets us in His grace and His mercy.